Welcome to the In Vino Fab podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. In Vino Fabulum means in wine story. There are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life in their communities paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn in space, share stories about our work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts, of course. On this episode, we're joined by Sheila McNeil. I had a chance to chat with her back in October. Sheila is an artist and freelance educator based in Glasgow, Scotland. Sheila has been working in the world of learning technology for over 20 years in various research and teaching posts. Her main areas of specialization are around supporting developing effective approaches to digital learning and teaching and building critically informed digital capability. Sheila is currently figuring out how to best balance her creative output and the need to pay the bills through consulting in the education sector. If you want to learn more about Sheila's artwork and her other educational work and research, go check her out. She has her website and links to any of her social media information. We can find out her amazing creative things on Instagram and Twitter. I put some links into this episode's show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Sheila. So lovely to have you on Invino Fab. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here as well, Laura. Thank you so much for asking me. Well, I followed your work for so long, Sheila, and you and I actually have similar stories for this year as we've had a change in career directions and trajectories. So I thought you'd be a great person to talk a little bit about that. And if you could share that with our listeners, that would be fantastic. Sure, I'd love to do that. So yes, this year I uh, resigned from my position at Glasgow Caledonian University. I was a senior lecturer in the academic development unit there. And it was something that I had been thinking about for quite a while. I was getting to the stage in my life and in my career where I wanted to have a better work-life balance. And also, I think like most people, I was kind of feeling a bit stuck in the rat race, being asked to do more with not even less, but just being asked to do more with nothing, which I find quite challenging. And I just wanted to give myself the opportunity to do something that I really wanted to do. And over the last couple of years, I've, I suppose, reignited my passion for drawing and painting. Um, and I really just wanted to have more of a creative outlet. So I think it's, I don't know, people talk about, you know, you make your own luck and, you know, the, the harder the work, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But I think there's some sort of serendipity was going around because I started thinking about it and I suppose I was just more open to some opportunities so something came up that allowed me to make the move and I had also been thinking about you know the part-time option or maybe doing condensed hours but actually the more I thought about that then I thought well I'm actually just going to end up doing my full-time job in less hours and I thought that's not really going to really help because I won't be less stressed I'll just be more stressed and I whatever time I'm supposedly not working I will be just working so I thought no I'll just make a clean break so I finished at the end of April so I'm about six months in and so far so good it's been great I love it wow look at you you're leaving the comforts of academia well I don't know if other people have said that to you because um, as some of our listeners know I have also left uh, a rule not not as well high up as yours but they they often go oh you're very brave oh that's a really bold move and I don't know what you think about that when people comment on you leaving um, academia and doing something totally different or not on the path that you're supposed to be or thought to be an, as a career do you think it's that bold it, it, it is it's a it's a very bold move um, I suppose a lot of people would say that and I keep <laughs> I said that to myself quite a lot as well at the time 
I think though it's just probably my time of, of life and I didn't see that I was going to really progress hugely um, either um, and kind of like a professorial role or academically or and, and then the, the option is management and I didn't really want that so I think I was at a place where I was quite content with where I was um, and what I was doing um, and it just felt right to to step away um, and I'm still involved in you know in academia I'm still writing a bit I'm I'm the chair of ALT the Association for Learning Technology which is um the UK's largest membership organisation for people who are involved in learning technology. So I'm very, still very active, um, but I've just, I'm just, I feel more in control. And I think that was the thing that was getting to me more than anything. And I'm sure there are lots of people that feel like that just now. I think particularly with the world as it is just now, I think we all feel slightly out of control. Um, so I just wanted to take a little bit of control back for me. Yes, yeah, one thing we're always asked to do more with less and you always have to make choices. And with those choices, I think in our work, we often make compromises for what we really actually want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think I, I was feeling that I was, there were so many things that I was doing that I was compromising on in work because like everybody, there was never enough time and we were spending so much, you know, meetings, how many meetings did I go to? You know, I used to dread Tuesdays because Tuesdays were just like all back-to-back meetings, um, which actually then meant that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and a bit of Monday were just spent kind of catching up from the meetings. So, yes, I just felt that I compromised too much and it was a, a good point to just say, no, let's just, let's just try something new. All right, ejecting yourself from the tenure track in academia, you decide, I'm going to go out and do my own sort of thing. I'm going to do some consulting, some creative works. But to start that, did you kind of plan ahead in terms of what you'd be doing next? If there was something else you want to launch or save some money or some other long-term planning for retirement, I don't know, that you were kind of thinking about when you left your official role at the university? Yeah, so I had planned, but possibly not as much as I should. I mean, I didn't... I don't have huge financial backing to do it, but um, I suppose maybe the age I am, quite a lot of people ask me if I'm going to retire, which I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> so I can't do that. I think people were shocked um, because, as you say, it's quite a brief thing to do, particularly if you're on, you know, the equivalent of a 10-year track. It's a big, big thing. And I, I didn't do it lightly. And, you know, um, I had a very good job and I liked my job. I like I liked the people I worked with. There were just wider contextual things happening that made it, I found it increasingly difficult for me to have the space to do the things that I, I felt I could do well. Um, so I felt my professional development was almost being compromised as well. Mm-hmm. And I was being asked to do things that I could do, but I just wasn't enjoying. And... Um, I think you get to, and I also I got to a point, I didn't want to have another what if or if only. So I didn't want that this time next year to kind of think to myself, oh, if only I had done that. Um, I thought, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen is I'm going to have to get another job, full-time right. job. You know, and if I have to do that, I have to do that. Right. That's fair enough. So, yeah, but, but people do I think be, the the security of a job and um, yeah as you say getting being part of that tenure track and being part of 
yeah, that that community. It's a lot, and I didn't do it lightly. I didn't kind of wake up one day and think, oh, I'm just going to pack in my job. I did think about it, and I've been thinking about it, you know, for a couple of years, and probably over the past the the past year, I've been there were various things on other parts of my life that I kind of like jigsaw, putting bits of the jigsaw together um, to allow me to do it. Something uh, like I was wondering, is there anything that you kind of did to have that think on? Because you're right, you've you've been meditating a bit on this for a while. Like this isn't just something you did, uh, snap judgment. Mm-hmm. It was something you've been thinking about. But what, what got you kind of through? Was there anything that kind of guided your thought process? Or um, did you like, I sit and write my journal. <laughs> I'm like, is this correct? Uh, is, is there anything that you kind of did that helped, helped you process a little bit about uh, your next I steps. think I, st- I did I did more creative things I did more painting I did more collaging I did things that I really enjoyed um and I think that that kind of contrast about doing some things you know at the weekend and thinking you know I actually really loved today because I did this and I didn't have to answer emails today I didn't have to do that so um yeah I don't think there was any, there was one one thing but I think it was it was a slow kind of growing of my own confidence mm-hmm. that that little kind of nagging well little voice inside my head that was going you could do something else got louder and louder uh, and I started listening to it and I you know you have those kind of I suppose an internal dialogue is like well can I do it would that be silly um, but there were a few things that happened so I, I wrote a book with a couple of colleagues that got published at the beginning of this year so that was kind of a milestone. It's like, well, that's done. Um, and they were just, it just all felt right when I'd done it. But I think it's probably just being confident in myself and trusting myself because I think it's too easy for us all to think, well, what would somebody else do? And, you know, who do I know? And whilst you want to, look, look, well, it's great to have role models. I think ultimately at some point you've just got to think, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm taking responsibility for me because I'm a big girl. Um, it goes wrong it goes wrong yeah and I'm not gonna let you skate over I wrote a book and not talk about your book Um, so (laughs) please tell our listeners what book you uh, happened to write with some colleagues that was pretty impressive (laughs) (laughs) okay so um, along with them a former colleague of mine Bill Johnson and a a colleague um, Bill and I used to work together at Strathclyde University he retired a few years ago and Keith Smythe who's he's got the most impressive title he's the professor of pedagogy at the University of the Highlands and Islands Uh, we wrote a book called the conceptualizing the the digital university the intersection of policy um, pedagogy and practice sorry (laughs) I can say it there Um, so really that was an exploration some research we've been doing over the last oh gosh probably about six or seven years really exploring um, what the notion of a digital university but actually what a university is what is its purpose in the 21st century and really taking um, a look at the political context that we're living in so um, a lot of it is a critique of the neoliberal political environment that we're living in particularly in you know in in the the global north it's written very much from a UK academic perspective but I think there's lots of things that we're talking about that resonate with um, you know the US and Canada and Australia and other global south we did try to you know mention you know we, we've highlighted that obviously with a word count we would have loved to put more in, in into it but right. we were quite limited um so we've come up with a i suppose a conceptual model to allow people to think about 
um, and contextualise their own practice. So our main critical perspective was um, critical pedagogy. Um, sorry, I mean theoretical perspective was, was critical pedagogy. So um, I think and that, that was been quite interesting in itself, you know, just going back to that and actually realising how relevant and how necessary that a level of criticality is just now. It is quite good, my friend. So I'll put a link to this. I've only started to read this, um, but every time people talk about the digital next and digital, digital transformation, I said, I'm thinking they need to have that theoretical background that you were talking to. And it, it is relevant and applicable as to where we're going to take post-secondary education because things are shifting and changing. And it's not about the emerging technology or the platform. It's about figuring out the frameworks for where you want to position and how learning looks like as we move forward. And I think it's, I've only just started, so I am um, enjoying it and I hope others will enjoy it as well. So I'll put a link for, in their show notes for listeners. Oh, that's great. And I mean, I, I think I've said this to you. Um, I mean, it, it is quite a rant, <laughs> really. But <laughs> Who doesn't like a good rant? You've come to the right place, um, Sheila. It, it really is about people, not technology. Um, and, you know, we, thir- you know, we totally believe that actually, you know, any digital technology any platforms or anything you're doing particularly around learning and teaching you have to have the people not the platform or the products at at the heart so we're really kind of emphasizing that and we do a critique of some uh some other views around about that and we you know questioning that kind of acceptance of you just buy something then automatically things will just transform um i think we probably all know that that doesn't quite work out (laughs) Yeah, no, technological determinism. I, I think I appre- I've appreciated following you on Twitter and reading what you've been writing uh, for some while, just because you are thinking about human-centeredness in this mm-hmm. and, not, and putting the, yeah, like you said, the people and our society first. Like, that's really what it, we should be looking at. And um, between the UK and the US, we, we share common things. And you've also brought this up uh, that you've essentially said, uh, we like to live to work instead of working to live and unlike other cultures. So if you've ever lived and work in France or Spain or South America, like people have their values set differently than our two cultures. And that's just how our societies are. Canada's a bit like this too, is we're trying to grind out and do things um, that we think is correct. But when you have a bit of a pause, like you said on the weekend and you realize, Oh, I actually want to live for my weekends and not my weeks that you're finding value in what you're doing now. It sounds like in some of the art and, yeah, working absolutely. On. yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I've, I've always tried to be quite good at that kind of boundary between work and mm-hmm. real life, if you like. But again, it's it's difficult. Um, and that's I, I did think that was getting harder. I think, again, you know, with social media and with networking, I, although, you know, I, I'm the first to admit I've, you know, benefited hugely from, you know, just the connections and the networking opportunities I've had in social media. That has changed. And, you know, my own interaction on that with channels has definitely changed. And I try to actively reflect on that as well. But, I've, you know, I've tried to kind of step back from that as well and, you know, not, not, check my phone and, and not look at Twitter all the time and those kind of things. So I think, you know, when Twitter started at first and I was doing a lot more traveling with work and I think that kind of the work-life balance thing was getting a slightly out of hand. But for a while, I mean, Twitter was like a, a good friend to a, lo- a lonely traveler, if you like, you yeah. know, because you could reach out to people. But yeah, I think kind of stepping back and just doing things you, you, you love 
and just having space and actually just having time to think is really important. And one of the things I have noticed is that I don't have email dread you know, on Monday morning when you like open, you kind of think, oh, I should have looked at it on Sunday night. And you kind of think, no, I'm not looking at it on Sunday night. This is Sunday, it's weekend. And you go in on Monday morning, you're like, oh, gosh, what's going to be there? So I don't have that anymore. So it's great. <laughs> I, I think that's very smart. I think de-screening and de uh, untying yourself and tethering yourself away from the email is really important because you're right. People do that Sunday. They have a Sunday dread. So I'm like, people are like, Oh, tomorrow I go back to work. And, yeah. and it's really sad. Like we even enjoy what we're doing. Like you said, it's not like you dislike what you're doing. It's the mm-hmm. um, monotony of the things we thought would make our lives easier have actually just added on to the work we do. And it's invisible work we do. Right. Yeah. So yes. email or booking flights to somewhere or like there's a bunch of things that we all thought oh it's automated or online or digital but that just makes us have more work exactly yeah exactly um you've also mentioned so you have been a member of alts c so the association for learning technology um for a while and you're the chair and you threw like a massive conference recently because i've followed the Twitter back channel because that's <clears throat> where I go to conferences these days. So it's on Twitter. I just followed the hashtag and it looked amazing. And you had some excellent speakers and committee members and that's a, a big task to do. So I was reading a little bit around your reflection on the role. So I don't know if you want to share a little bit about your experiences. Was this your first rodeo, the first conference? Uh, no. <laughs> No, no. So, yeah, so uh, all does an annual conference. It's our big, you know, shoot. I'm trying to think what would be the Texan equivalent of it. Um, a hold down or something. Is there a big, yeah. you know, is there a big. A little brouhaha. So, yeah, I know. It's definitely a huge conference. Yeah. Yeah. So, we had 470 people registered. Um, uh, it was at the University of Edinburgh. It was a super impressive building so if you can see any of the photographs of it we were all a bit like minions just looking up at the ceiling going "Ooh, ooh, lovely building um and we also had uh, um we stream as much as we can all the keynotes were streamed and we we stream quite a few sessions so one of um alt's values is around openness so we although obviously you know um we want people to come to the conference. We do realise for many reasons people can't come to the to the conference. So we try and, and share as much as we can. But yes, this year was very interesting. Um, our keynotes were great, as you said. We had Sue Beckingham, who's a really close colleague, and you know I just love Sue and admire her work so much. Um, we had uh, Jesse Stommel, who I'm sure a lot of you will know from Digital Pedagogy Lab, and we had Ollie Bray, who works for Lego. So it was a really nice contrast. There was a lot about data, and again, a lot about humanity as well. And um, yes, I think it was quite um, quite a critical reflection on what's happening in education in our, in currently. Um, so it was a very good conference. It was very busy. Although I'm the, the chair of Vault, I wasn't a chair of the conference. I actually chaired the conference last year, and that um, that's mad. Um, <laughs> but because I'm the chair, I am doing quite a bit. And we have our annual general meeting, um, and yeah, it's just a great time. It's a great time to meet people and catch up. And um, yeah, I was exhausted by the end of the three days. I was thoroughly exhausted, but it was great. And there was lots of things. Um, that, you know, I was thinking, gosh, that's amazing. I also did a couple of sessions as well, presented in a couple of sessions so and chaired some sessions. So, yeah, it's busy, busy three days, but but really good. And um, I think that 
kind of networking and bringing people together is always so important. Um, and it was great to see so many people and, you know, talk to people, you know, catch up with old friends, but also meet new people as well. And I think as chair, you know, I, I try and do that. I try and kind of practice my kind of walk, the open walk and, you know, try and talk to as many people as I can. Um, yeah, it was great. It was, a, it was a great conference. And all as the, all the keynotes are, you can access them from the old website. They're on, on YouTube. I think they were, well, they were live streamed and then the version was up almost instantly. Yeah, they are on there because I, I I watch them not in real time, but later. And we'll put a link to it because I love that um, conferences and associations that are thinking openly um, for ex- access purposes and sharing. It doesn't mean you have everything um, out there, but you share a bit. And that actually invites other people to kind of dialogue or enter into the community or say, maybe next year I'll attend or get involved somewhere or learn more about um, yeah. that, that group. I think that's really important because that's our professional lives are a bit in person and a bit digital regardless of what we do. And so making that community in person and keeping that network going online is really and helpful yeah. I, I've seen at least from what I've when I follow along with alts. So yeah. Yeah. No, and I say openness is a core value. We're quite a small, I mean, the alts, um, although we've got quite a lot of members, I think we're nearly 4,000 individual and, and um, uh, institutional members, which for, for the UK is pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very small core team, so we re- rely hugely on our community to make the conference a success. We have, you know, our conference committee, I think there were about 100 people reviewing papers, and we had, you know, it was busy conference, and I have to say that the, the quality of the um, presentations I saw were all excellent. And I, I think having gone to Alt for quite a while, every year the quality of presentation just seems to be going up and up, which is fantastic to see that people have found somewhere to share their practice, to share their research. And that's really, really important with a supportive community. And I always find with Alt, it's a lovely place to, to present because there's not someone who's just trying to ask you a question for the sake of asking a question they're genuinely interested in what in in your work yeah and I like there's a blend of practice like you said and scholarship so it's a bit of both um because you don't always see that at conferences um I like and 470 is large uh but I think that's like a small conference in the U.S. so I would rather go to that conference because it sounds quite intimate and yes absolutely yeah Yeah, I think that's great and those are some of the best kind of ways that we know have converse, side conversations, go for dinner, get a drink, hang out, um, just follow up after a session. I think that's lovely. So yeah. that's great. So next year, put it in your diaries. It's in London, which mm. um, uh, London, baby. Uh, so uh, that's quite a good location for people. Although I think Edinburgh, a lot of people came. We had um, we quite a lot of international delegates as well, which is great. Um, but yeah, London next year. So yeah, again, Keynotes will always be streamed. We make things as open as we can. And really, pretty much everything that Alt does is, is open, unless there's a very good reason for it not to be. Um, but yes, yeah. that's just what we do. Yeah, we'll put a link to that association. It's, it's fun getting to know, as I talk with different um, colleagues, everyone has a different kind of professional alignment association community. I was like, great, I'm going to share this with our listeners too so they can learn. And um, there are lots of great resources. And web, they also have webcast webinars and other things they yeah. do that they blog about what's happening. So I like the transparency. Yeah, and we also have a professional recognition scheme as well. Mm-hmm. and CMOT, which you become a certified member and that's a reflective portfolio so if you were thinking anybody's listening is thinking actually I would like to get some recognition for what I do um, 
I thoroughly recommend that. Uh, you know, just a great way just to even start putting down everything that you do, you know, all the things we forget about. <laughs> right. And you kind of like take stock now if you wrap up a job, let's say. Uh, but yeah, you're like kind of saying, oh, these are really relevant. And I think that's great. So I'll put in the CMOLT. So it's a portfolio and they would yeah. apply and go through that kind of peer review sort of thing. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots, again, there's lots of open, openly available guidance. There's also, we have an open repository of successful portfolios. So you can go and look and see what other people have done in terms of their own reflections as well. I like that. I think this is great. All right. So you're still attached to this community. You've left yeah. one working community. Now, what does it feel like to be untethered to an institution? You've, you're kind of doing your own thing now and you're working with some different groups, but you're like a free range uh, educator, designer, consultant, researcher. So what, what's that like now? Uh, so far, so good. There are things that I do miss, uh, some pr very practical things, like access to edu room when you go to another university here. <laughs> but that's not a huge thing. Um, there's obviously, there's, um, for research purposes, I don't have access to you know, academic libraries and to journals, those sorts of things. However, um, if I really want to find something, and I'll find, I will find a way. There's a good community out there, I think, that would help. Yeah, you, so yeah. that's good. Um, but it, so far, it, it's liberating. I think, yes, there is that. Um, you don't have that kind of institutional, I suppose, yeah, that kind of foundation or, you know, support around you. But at the, on the other hand, it's quite liberating not to because you're an independent agent and you know I've been working with a couple of universities and I think because I am so recently out of a university I understand how things work right um so I think it, it's not like going in and working with colleagues who who look at you and think well what, what do you know about anything because I do kind of understand where they're, they're coming from you're coming with your own experiences so yeah, if you knew exactly. that you needed access that. to yeah. a repository or an ethics yeah. kind of approval for research that they could yeah exactly exactly so um so so far so good I think it's um it's liberating in a way um but yes i'm i'm still uh, yeah i can't i can't say i've i've missed that aspect of the institutional affiliation however i think that there are some points where actually you, it's, you just have to position yourself differently mm -hmm. because you're representing you now it's not yeah. it's not you and the institution it, it's just just me that's kind of nice. I've always thought it's just been me, so maybe I should have been less selfish. Uh, no, I think that's good. Um, well, maybe that's a cultural thing. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know anything. Yeah. If you're in a non-tenure position, I can see where that comes from. Yeah. I think when you have a, a full-time, you know, secure-ish, anything can be secure the position, then you do feel that when you go out and when you're at conferences, you are in a in a sense, you are representing the institution, whether or not they actually realise that you're doing it. Um, but, you know, so that, I think that's always, that, that's always been at the back of my mind. Um, I think they do. Um, and so I shouldn't say that. So I will say the university thinks that um, more of us that do some work on the side and we're permitted to, as academics, you're allowed to do some of that. Um, we have to obviously sign conflict of agreements and make sure that like they like us to report a lot more. And they assume that we get a lot of these things because of our 
role at the university. And I, and I often say, um, most, most of it is from people reading my blog or Twitter. So like, there's some of that that I have a mixed feeling of um, the institutions worried about. They use the word brand institutional vision. Um, and I think it is interesting when people say, like, I represent me online or what my values are, not just my institution, like comments and retweets are not endorsements and things like that. So it's been interesting um, to hear people talk about themselves. And we've talked a little bit about that, like your identity of self and the things you affiliate with. What does that, what does that mean when yeah. you're online? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always been me. I think I've been relatively good at self-censorship, so I've never felt the need and I've um, to say that these views are my own. Um, I think if I'd ever worked anywhere where I'd had to put a statement up, then I might have been doing what I'm doing now a lot earlier. Um, so, yes, but I, so I think I've always been me. I think there's, there's kind of a flip side to that as well, that with the networking and, and you know, blogging and, and doing things, that actually I think there's a lot of... Um, institutional rep well reputational value that institutions get because you're affiliated with them that isn't quite reciprocated sometimes and I know that um I suppose half jokingly like people would say to me you know oh you're just you're just always on Twitter you're always how do you find the time to blog and for me that was part of my professional practice it still is part of my professional practice um and when I was asked to do things externally, and I think everyone gets that, you almost need that kind of external validation because you go somewhere else and you explain what you're doing in your own institution and people almost appreciate it more than they do back home. Um, so, yeah, so I think that there's always those kind of sort of tensions because I still think that um, the academic establishment, you know, internationally are still not quite, they've not quite got to grips with um, how you can make, um, how you can enhance your academic identity through non-formal means. So it's not just about research. It's not just about publications anymore. It's mm -hmm. much deeper. I think that's much healthier, actually. But there is a tension there. Um, and I know colleagues... Um, of mine find that you know they're maybe asked to do something to go and speak at another university and they're told that actually oh well maybe there'll be somebody else that might be more appropriate but no the invitation came to them because of their work so there I think there's all sorts of things going on just now but yes I, I do like the fact that it's it's me now it's definitely me so yeah and it's interesting that you talk about, like, I think that you're describing almost like boundaries that aren't there anymore, whether it's in a discipline, in an institution, an organization that um, people just have this way of approaching how they're going to reach to others, learn from others, um, get knowledge from others. It's not the same patterns that we've seen. And you're right, that's like the tension. I like the idea of the tension. It's kind of like elasticity. They're kind of figuring out, um, well, what are the pathways that scholarship is created and produced and uh, things like that. So um, it's, that's very interesting to me. Um, and I don't know if we've solved this yet, but this is an ongoing battle that I think more of our disciplines, professional organizations and university colleges are asking themselves like what counts, what's relevant and what's there. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we explore a bit in the book. We, we, we talk about the notion of porosity and sort of those kind of, how sort of leaky the leaky university if you like how things leak out of academia and back in and sort of a bit of osmosis if you like but I think there's um something that um is really really powerful about that sharing of knowledge and how that you know and in some ways technology has really 
transformed that. Um, that's really exciting, but it's it's not controlled by the publishers. It's right. not controlled by the institutions. And I think that's quite worrying for people. But I see that as a huge opportunity. Um, you know, one of the things we've been looking at quite recently is, you know, this whole notion of public pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And if you think, you know, particularly what's happening just now with people like Greta Thunberg and the climate change movement, that's so exciting how all those kids around the world have got together, how they're sharing things, they're finding out finding out things, they're creating new knowledge, they're hopeful. Oh, hope that they really <laughs> succeed in, you know, um, getting people to take more notice of what is, you know, it is absolutely, we're, we're living in a, a time of crisis. Um, but there's still people, you know, I've heard a few media comments about people saying, yeah, but they're just kids. And I think you're, they're really being exploited. I saw a nine-year-old boy crying. And it's like, yes, of course he's crying because he's worried the world is going to be destroyed because we are destroying the world. But it's right. this kind of patronizing, yeah, they're only little kids. What do they know? And it was just like, instead of celebrating the fact that they were being really engaged with a very serious issue and realizing we need these kids to be engaged we've all i mean through our our own contacts like we've our generation we've just not done enough right i would agree and i would say like their pathways to getting a voice and sharing is amazing like i i think that they've called out the I guess, passivity and the lack of understanding empathy from the adults. And I don't know, I think there's lots of um, kids and young people that are doing amazing things that we need them to do this because the the older generations aren't and they're not going to be around and they don't have the same kind of investment of a future than that they do. I think, um, yeah, we could smarten up as adults and we could learn something from the youth and they know a lot more and they're more involved and they're more aware than we think and give them credit for. So I think Absolutely. That's a good and that should be, you know, they are developing their own curriculum in a way and we should be embracing that and bringing that into schools at all levels. Um, and I know that will be happening. There'll be pockets of that happening everywhere, but it should, that should just be allowed to happen. And it, it shouldn't be, oh, but you know what? We haven't got an assessment that will fit that. <laughs> it's just like, you know, we really, we should be using this as a fantastic opportunity to expand notions of, of, of education. Uh, yeah, we don't need an assessment for everything. We need to think, no. about, <laughs> we need to think about applying what's going on in the real world into our curriculum and, and yeah. engaging where they are engaged. And yeah, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap up, I was just wondering if there's any sort of projects or things you're working on or that's percolating ahead for you that you'd like to share with our listeners. Um, well, I guess I'm doing a couple of papers based on the book, which is quite good. I'm also doing a little, well, a bit more with my art. Um, so I've got a website up so you can all, hopefully your listeners would go and have a look at that. Um, and I need to be doing a bit more of that as well. So that's kind of my next big step is like doing something that is totally out of my comfort zone and going to speak to gallery owners and, and, and things like that. And I'm also going to maybe do a slight kind of online retail thing. So I'm experimenting with that. So that's all new and exciting and quite scary. Um, <laughs> I like I, it. Yeah, completely different. Um, and also the other thing that I'm, involved in and I know you are as well uh, Laura is the FEMED Tech Network mm-hmm. so there's lots of things happening um, all the time there and I think that's a really exciting community 
the way that that's developing, it's very organic, um, becoming increasingly international. And I think that that's really, um, really exciting. Um, I guess just now kind of outside work, um, this is October in, in the UK, we're kind of obsessed with this thing called Brexit. So <laughs> right. when this podcast goes out, I don't know, I may well be a refugee. <laughs> We'll, we'll take you. We can start adoption papers. Uh, no, yeah, no, you're right. You're not sure what's going to happen at this point. No. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I suppose and that, that's one of the reasons that I decided just to, you know, change things because, my goodness, there are so many things changing just now that you couldn't make, you, you just could not made up this whole saga. Um, so, uh, you know, um, you can sit tight and you can sit tight or you can just say, do you know what, I'm going to do it now. No regrets. Yeah, li- life is shorter than we think. And if we don't take advantage of things or we put them off till later, there might not be a later. So good. Great. Um, I will also share with our listeners, uh, if they want to see a sneaky behind the scenes uh, work at your art. I love how you post about it and you reflect it on Instagram. Like yes. you're, very, you're very good with to like talk about and like show paints and like things going yeah. on. I love yeah. that. So. So I want to share a bit more of the process and I need to do a bit more of that as well. But that's been, it's been interesting kind of using those, I suppose, those digital learning skills in a different context as well. Um, it's like pulling back the curtain. So I like, I like yeah. seeing how people learn and, and, and do things uh, that mm. they're interested and passionate in. So we wish you all the best of luck oh. to promote your work, uh, especially uh, your artwork and things that you're working on. So shifting gears from promoting research, scholarship and pedagogy, then I think this is great. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to be able to have this chat with you. Absolutely. Um, before we go, I'd be remiss to ask you a couple common questions we ask our listeners. One, um, when you get to take a break and sit with colleagues, friends, family, is there a certain wine or beverage that's your go-to? I do like a nice glass of wine, um, but also I do quite like a nice gin and tonic. And mm. we do have some rather nice uh, gins from Scotland. And my, I have family connections on the island of Isla, which is probably more known for malt whiskey. But they do a really nice whiskey, uh, sorry, a really nice gin called the Botanist. So I quite like a little botanist and tonic every now and then. I had no idea that you had a connection there. I enjoy them a lot. I'm a big gin yeah. lover myself. So the Botanist is delicious. Um, do you have it straight, tonic? Uh, I tend to have tonic. Um and there is another gin that I, well, Harris gin has the most amazing bottle as well. Um, so I tend to have a tonic and I just quite like lemon, but pink mm-hmm. grapefruit is very on trend just now. <laughs> it um, is. It is for sure. It, and it depends it. whether or not they've got them in the supermarket where I can go that, go that way or not. Fair enough. I love it. We're going to add that to our drink suggestion. And um, I didn't know if there was a story or something you've been reading, listening to, watching that's resonated with you lately that you'd like to share with our listeners because we always like recommendations here. Well, probably like many, many people, I am um, halfway through The Testaments by Margaret Atwood and I'm actually listening to it. Oh, which, good. Uh, I, I've just started to get into audiobooks. I'm still kind of testing the ground. But there's a very good a- adaptation that the BBC are doing just now. Um, and I'm listening to 15 minutes every night before bed. It's their book at bedtime, you call it. And I'm, I'm loving it. 
This is on the BBC on their podcast they have. Yeah, um, but I probably will. I, I mean, I bought the book, so I'm going to read it. But I, it, I, I'm actually quite liking that, that, and very interesting um, how she's gone back to that world after such a long time. And again, obviously with the TV series and everything, it's uh, you know it's a bit more popular. But also, I think just that. She was so perceptive and, you know, gosh, my goodness, what a modern oracle she's turned out to be, sadly, in many, you know, sadly. Yeah, no, Margaret Atwood, I would say read the book first, the first book, The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. Um, I read the Testaments. I'm not going to ruin it for anyone, but the story, the three stories of three women is what it goes back to. And she was recently in town for her book tour um, here in Dallas. And she did want to, like, leave room for the writers that are doing the Hulu TV show and just other people think about what else has gone on. And it's like a, a 15, 16 year jump to where it is and hearing tales of uh, a few characters you'll know in the future. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. So it gave me a bit more hope. Uh, oh, that's all I'll say. So for the, the story and also real life, if we're applying it to analogies of what we're living through these days. So yeah, so that's I think that's probably the thing just just now, um, and also I suppose um, there've been some really good exhibitions at the Edinburgh Festival, and there was a relating to my work, there was a, a really good exhibition at the Museum of Modern Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh um, around collaging. It was called Cut and Paste, and it's actually the first exhibition ever around collage. Um, and that was really, really fascinating because it had such a, a range of material from things from the 16th century that cut out bits of material and little people to the, uh, you know, Sex Pistols, never mind box, um, uh, record cover to Picasso to all sorts of things. So that was an amazing experience and very inspiring um, for me as well. There's someone else I, that I think that's collaging a lot. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to the States, but I'm sure that that exhibition will will travel. I'll take a look at it. Um, I think there's someone else that I should introduce to in the ed tech area that does collaging that you should, you'd be friends with. Um, I think we're going to put a recommendation to some of these things, the Testaments, uh, the Gin, of course, the Cut and Paste, I'll go and check out now that you have yeah. me interested in that. Oh, and the hashtag FemEdTech, Feminist mm-hmm. Educational Technologist Network. We'll put a link to their Twitter handle. You should definitely follow along um, to their blog, uh, the stories they're writing. Um, that open network is open for all of us who should be feminists, regardless yeah. of anything. So, yeah, I love it. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Sheila, and having a chat. I hope that our listeners enjoy just hearing from you and learning from you. I, I know that I have, and we really appreciate you taking time to be part of the InVinoFob podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I'm delighted to be part of it. Big thrill. Come back anytime. Well, we can happen to converse again. Yeah, love to. Love to. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab, and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.